This is Brand and New from the International Trademark Association. This podcast series explores changes and dynamics in the legal world, now and tomorrow, with a focus on intellectual property. Welcome to Brand and New. I am Audrey Doré. Trademark law and the First Amendment seem from the outset to have a complex and conflicted relationship. Indeed, while protection of the right to freedom of expression can encourage the creation and dissemination of ideas and information, government protection of trademarks can suppress and punish expression that incorporates another's registered trademark. Even further, trademark law sometimes prevents registration of signs that would otherwise be considered speech protected by the First Amendment with numerous and strict conditions on what may or may not be registered. Lisa P. Ramsey, professor of law at the University of San Diego School of Law, who teaches in the areas of trademark law and intellectual property in general, will explain the interactions between free expression and trademark law. Lisa's most recent publications put the focus on the potential conflict between trademark and free expression rights in national and international laws, in the Houston Law Reviews, the Trademark Reporter, and many others. She also recently wrote a paper about non-traditional trademarks and inherently valuable expression at Oxford University Press. She will notably talk about two recent groundbreaking U.S. Supreme Court cases right on point, namely Mattel v. Tam in 2017 and Nyanku v. Brunetti in 2019, about the right for the government to deny trademark registration to certain categories of trademark respectively potentially disparaging marks and immoral or scandalous trademarks. Lisa, could you give us an overview of the dynamics at stake in the complicated relationships between the free speech doctrine as articulated in U.S. constitutional law and trademark law? So uh, when a party obtains rights to a trademark, either through registration or through use in the United States, because in the United States you can get rights based on use. The government grants that trademark owner the exclusive right to use that mark in connection with certain goods and services. And the trademark law also gives the owner of the trademark the right to uh, ask the government to punish unauthorized use of that trademark um, and suppress use of that trademark through an injunction. And often there's a good reason to suppress uh, unauthorized uses of trademarks, right? This might be misleading commercial speech. It might, mm-hmm. it might be fraudulent speech. But in a number of circumstances, uh, courts have uh, enjoined parties from using trademarks uh, in expression that is not commercial or have enjoined uses of trademarks that is not misleading and not fraudulent. And uh, this can conflict with the right to freedom of expression, which is protected in constitutions such as the United States Constitution and also treaties. Uh, So, for example, the International Convention on Civil and Political Rights has a provision that uh, protects the right to freedom of expression. People have a freedom to seek, uh, receive and impart information and ideas of all kinds. It doesn't matter if it's it's verbally or in writing. Um, It applies, you know, regardless of borders and it can apply to art and other media as well. We also see uh, regional regions protecting the right to freedom of expression. So, for example, in Europe, you have the European Convention on Human Rights, which also protects the right to freedom of expression and a similar provision in the American Convention on Human Rights. 
So trademark law can potentially conflict with the right to freedom of expression because the right to freedom of expression does protect commercial speech. Um, in the United States and other countries, it might have less protection than non-commercial speech, but commercial speech is still protected from government regulations that are not justified. Usually it's okay if trademark laws are regulating fraudulent speech, obscene speech, uh, misleading commercial speech, but once trademark laws start to apply to non-commercial speech or speech that is not misleading, um, they can potentially conflict with the First Amendment or uh, other laws uh, you know, protecting the right to freedom of expression. I would like to go a little bit further regarding constitutional law. It's not an area IP practitioners usually deal with very often. Could you also explain what does it mean to submit trademark law to a First Amendment analysis? So uh, I'd mentioned before, uh, you know, things that might be important when you're deciding whether something violates the right to freedom of expression. Uh, one is whether this expression is commercial or not commercial, right? In the United States, we ask whether this expression proposes a commercial trans, does no more than propose a commercial transaction. So an example would be an advertisement for a, an automobile, right? That would be commercial speech. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, sometimes you might have speech that has both commercial and non-commercial components. In that context, you might look and see, you know, what, what exactly, is this an advertisement? Is, is someone uh, kind of having an, an economic gain from this ad, et cetera? Uh, but things like political speech, right? Um, and, and even the sale of books and movies, um, that is all pure non-commercial speech. Um, and so it, it's uh, protected by the First Amendment. And so you need a very strong uh, justification, right? Uh, a compelling mm -hmm, government mm -hmm. interest if you're going to regulate that kind of speech. And, and so in the United States, we call uh, the kind of scrutiny that you have of regulations of non-commercial speech, um, strict scrutiny analysis. And so we ask, uh, first of all, you know, what is the government reason for regulating the speech? And is that a compelling government interest? If it's not a compelling government interest, then the law fails uh, constitutional scrutiny. And then also the uh, law has to be narrowly tailored to further that compelling government interest. So if it uh, is too broad, it, it might not satisfy constitutional scrutiny for that reason. Um, and then a third thing you think about, too, is whether um, there is a less restrictive means for regulating this expression. If there is, then then that's another way that the law can fail strict constitutional scrutiny. If the, the law is a viewpoint-based regulation of speech, that's another mm. reason you might subject it to strict scrutiny. So an example, uh, let me kind of back up and talk about content-based and viewpoint-based regulations of speech. So if the government says you can't talk about war, Right. That's a content based regulation of speech. It's examining what you're saying and saying you can't talk about this particular topic. But a more problematic regulation of speech regulates the viewpoint of that speech. So perhaps the government might say you can make statements that support the war, but you can't uh, make anti-war statements. And those are the, the worst kinds of regulations of speech in the United States. And I would say in other nations as well, if it's a viewpoint based regulation of speech, it's presumptively unconstitutional. It might just be categorically uh, rejected on the ground that it's unconstitutional, which is which is what happened in the Tam case. Um, or the court might apply the strict scrutiny analysis and ask whether this mm -hmm. law is narrowly tailored to further a compelling government interest. But if the law is content based um, and is regulating commercial speech, then a lower level of scrutiny would be applied. In the United States, this is called intermediate scrutiny. 
Um, the, the case in which the court set forth the factors is called the Central Hudson case. And here, the court said in Central Hudson that if it's misleading commercial speech, it's not protected by the First Amendment. So so a number mm -hmm. of uh, trademark decisions cite that language to say, oh, well, trademark infringement laws are regulating misleading commercial speech, so therefore they're constitutional. However, if the law is regulating non-misleading commercial speech, then the government has to prove that this law directly and materially furthers a substantial government interest. So the standard's a little bit lower for the government interest. It doesn't have to be compelling, it has to be substantial. In addition, that law has to be narrowly drawn to not um, endanger freedom of expression more than necessary to achieve that goal. So again, you need to have a narrowly tailored law, but it's easier to satisfy intermediate scrutiny analysis Courts also apply intermediate scrutiny analysis to, to what are called content neutral regulations of speech. So mm -hmm. if you're regulating the time, place, or manner of speech, maybe the sound level uh, of music concerts, right? That's generally okay if you can show that you're not regulating it based on content, right? You're only allowing, you know, rock bands, but not, uh, you know, heavy metal bands, right? That would be a problem. But if, if you're saying that everyone has to apply by the same rules, um, they just have to satisfy this intermediate uh, level of, of speech. Uh, you mentioned the, the TAM case. What are the main consequences of such decisions, so uh, the TAM case, uh, the Brunetti case, for IP lawyers? So so I think you'd mentioned before, right, that this law, it's, it's Section 2A of the Lanham Act, which is the Federal Trademark Act in the United States. But before TAM, before Brunetti, it banned the registration of words and symbols that may disparage others um, or uh, words or symbols that might be immoral or scandalous. In the TAM case involving a rock band that was going by the name The Slants, um, which uh, the, the uh, PTO had re refused registration of that mark and on the ground that it may disparage persons of Asian descent. Um, and in, the, in TAM, uh, the court said that this law discriminated based on the viewpoint of the speaker because the PTO is allowing registration of marks that celebrated Asians, uh, you know, that were mm -hmm. that were not racial slurs, but was uh, refusing to register Uh, hate speech, racial slurs, and and so therefore um, this law was struck down as as inconsistent with the Constitution. And then later in the Brunetti case, um, Eric Brunetti had applied to register F U C T uh, for apparel. Uh, he claimed it meant friends you can't trust. Uh, other people thought it uh, it meant basically fucked, uh, and so that was deemed to be immoral or scandalous, and it was refused registration. And then in the Brunetti case, the court found that the law banning registration of immoral and scandalous trademarks um, was also a viewpoint discriminatory law because uh, it was really focusing on, you know, the fact if your mark is deemed to be kind of acceptable to the general society as being moral, we can register it. But if mm. it's, you know, not not acceptable, you know, then, then you can't. So after TAM first and then later after Benetti, you asked what the, what the, uh, what the consequences were. Well, So one of the main ones was that uh, a number of organizations, companies that, that had applied to register these marks were able to get those registrations. So um, one example is uh, the football team in Washington, D.C., the Redskins. Their mark was canceled on the grounds that it was disparaging to Native Americans. Mm -hmm. And uh, they had challenged that. And then after the TAM decision, um, the PTO allowed that mark to be registered. And so, uh, you know, there were news reports about a number of, uh, you know, uh, you know, offensive or potentially offensive marks being registered, right? Profanity, hate speech. Someone tried to register the Nazi symbol for textiles. So people try, a lot of people applied for trademarks. But but I think one important point is that that doesn't mean they're automatically going to be registered. 
there are mm-hmm. other requirements you have to satisfy, right? A trademark has to be distinctive. It has to identify the source of goods and services. This particular word or symbol actually has to function as a trademark. It has to be used as a trademark. And so some of these applications have been denied on the ground that they failed to function as trademarks. Um, and in the United States, there are kind of two main areas of law that the PTO will cite. Uh, one, they might say that this is informational matter, right? It's a political or social message. Um, it might also be information about the goods and services, but in this context, like for profanity, hate symbols, the PTO has said that these words, uh, you know, kind of convey a message, right? A non-source identifying message um, and, and are not functioning as trademarks. But another ground you might use under failure to function doctrine would be that this is ornamental matter. It's decorative, right? Some people want to mm-hmm. wear a shirt that has profanity on the front or, or you know, an <laughs> offensive symbol, right? And, and, and so there's a market for this. And so you could argue that uh, also that um, that the, this kind of decorative use of words and phrases on T-shirts, clothing, you know, cell phone cases, that that is not really functioning as a trademark because it's ornamental or decorative and rather than a source identifying use of the phrase. And so even if, uh, you know, someone puts this word or this symbol on a hang tag in the reality, you know, and that, that's kind of a source identifying use of the trademark. In reality, they want to stop other people from putting these words, these symbols on a T-shirt. And and this is a problem that I have, uh, you know, with with the law is that is sometimes if you submit a specimen of use showing use on a hang tag, the, the courts will say, OK, we can overcome an ornamental matter uh, rejection and, and allow you to get a registration. But then these uh, owners now of the registrations will go after people who are using the phrase. In of a course, decorative it manner. has consequences. Right. Yeah, definitely. Right. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And you see and you see all the time something a phrase will become popular, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter, like social rallying cries, you know, Occupy Wall Street. And then right away, people often not associated with these movements at all will apply to register these phrases as trademarks <laughs> for apparel. <laughs> and um, and this causes outrage. Uh, and it should. Right. Because uh, these kinds of phrases should be remain available for everyone. Right. Have you noticed that companies try to register more scandalous trademarks? Uh, do you know if these cases, the ones we, we just discussed, have triggered major consequences on registration, both in terms of volume and nature of trademarks and beyond the mere registration process, do you think, Lisa, this new generation of trademarks will affect the flow of commerce in a particular way? I mean, I think no question, right? There are a number of applications and, and I've been quite happy that the USPTO has refused to register some of these uh, marks on grounds of failure to function or lack of distinctiveness. I guess another potential ground to refuse them would be uh, possibly functionality doctrine, a specific type of functionality. In the United States, we kind of group functionality into kind of utilitarian functionality, which often applies in the context like you have overlap with patent laws, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Kind of utilitarian advantages of certain products. Uh, but there's this also this doctrine called aesthetic functionality, mm-hmm. where people are claiming rights in, um, in a sense, kind of the ornamental or decorative features of a product. And the argument here is that there might be a competitive need for people in the industry to use that particular product feature. And so here you could argue, you know, perhaps that certain kinds of scandalous trademarks, right, profanity, uh, you know, certain obscene images, perhaps, again, there might be uh, reasons that we want to allow others to, to display these things on clothing. And so, so the functionality doctrine might be another doctrine that could be invoked in this context. So, so that's from the USPTO perspective. You asked whether, you know, if we register these, will this affect the flow of commerce? Well, well, some some professors, uh, Michael Grinberg, has, for example, has argued that these marks are, are just not very effective as trademarks. They don't do a good job identifying and distinguishing 
goods and services. And so, uh, and so therefore, you know, that, that's a reason why we shouldn't grant them in the first place, because uh, again, people see these as messages rather than as source identifying marks. So, so maybe they're, they're not functioning as well as marks, um, even if the PTO decides to register them. And then an argument that came up in both the Tam and the Bernetti cases was uh, whether or not having these marks out there, these racial slurs, right, this profanity, mm -hmm. is that going to be harmful to the public, to children who might see these shirts? Um, although my response uh, to those arguments is that, look, these trademark laws are not prohibiting speech. They're, they're only prohibiting registration of these terms and phrases. So even if Tam and, and uh, Bernetti were not able to get a registration for their marks, uh, they still could use the name of the band. They could still use the profanity on a mm -hmm. T-shirt. INTA is a global association representing more than 30,000 brand owners and professionals dedicated to supporting trademarks and related intellectual property to foster consumer trust, economic growth, and innovation. Lisa, some scholars raise potential impacts on the possibility to register distinctive descriptive trademarks on the dilution doctrine and on the requirement for inherently valuable expression. In this context, do you believe we should anticipate or even advocate for a more global reform of trademark law? So, so yes, I, I definitely think we, that after Tam and Bernetti, you might see some changes in trademark laws. And I've actually argued for this in my scholarship. Uh, so, for example, trademark dilution laws basically give trade, very strong trademark rights to the owners of famous trademarks. They can prevent others from using an identical or similar mark for non-competing goods and services in a manner that might blur the distinctiveness or uniqueness of the mark or tarnish the reputation of, of that trademark. And mm -hmm. um, these laws, the United States, but also other countries, too, do not require the use of the trademark to be misleading or confusing. And um, and so, therefore, I think if you applied constitutional scrutiny to trademark dilution laws, uh, I believe that the courts should find these laws to be unconstitutional. In my most recent paper in the Houston Law Review, I argue that, that dilution laws are viewpoint-based regulations of expression because um, basically what they're doing is, is saying that the junior user's use of this term or the symbol is inconsistent with the brand image or the ideas conveyed by the trademark. Mm. So when a, a guy named Victor Mosley uh, uses the term Victor's Secret for his shop that sells sex toys and, and lingerie, and Victoria's Secret finds out about this and, and complains about it, they actually were able to stop him under the dilution statutes from using the phrase Victor's Secret. There was no consumer confusion in that context, but, but you know, he was, he was argued that he was tarnishing the trademark. And especially for the tarnishment laws in the United States and, and other countries, Courts often apply that in contexts involving sex or drugs, in other words, offensive uses of trademarks. So it seems that when you look at the language in Tam and Bernetti and they talk about the fact that the, the word viewpoint in, in the constitutional law is actually quite broad and can apply to offensive speech, it seems pretty clear to me that at least the tarnishment provision would be deemed to be a viewpoint discriminatory trademark law. But again, I also think the blurring laws might also be deemed unconstitutional because of the fact that they're regulating, uh, you know, kind of uh, this this use of a trademark because of the inconsistent message. Mm -hmm. And other other ways I think that First Amendment laws might apply would be, as you mentioned, to inherently valuable expression. So in my scholarship, I've written about the fact that profanity, right, descriptive terms, popular slogans, you know, colors uh, or maybe even representational shapes all have value before someone adopts them as a trademark. They convey messages. 
for example, the color green conveys the message that something is environmentally friendly. And when somebody adopts them as a trademark, that might chill expression of others in the industry who might want to use that informational phrase or that descriptive term or that color. And so um, in the Houston paper um, and some other works that I've written, um, I, I argue that we may want to consider not granting trademark rights in certain contexts where registration would actually have a chilling effect in an industry. Or if we do grant trademark rights, they should be narrow rights. So in the United States, we, we don't have that many statutory defenses. There are some defenses that have been developed in the common law. But I think it's important in the United States and especially in, in other countries that have a more civil law system to have limitations on trademark rights in the statute. Uh, you can do this by either requiring commercial use of the mark or use of the mark as a trademark for liability um, or uh, by having a specific defense for comparative advertising or parody or nominative or referential use of a trademark. So I'm hopeful that uh, that <laughs> nations will make some changes in the United States right now. Our Congress is actually considering making some changes to the trademark law. And in the EU, you, there are a number of defenses in the statute that have been useful, I think, in protecting competition and freedom of expression. So, Lisa, you just mentioned Europe. I would like to talk about the situation outside uh, the U.S., there seems to be an increasing consensus that certain national trademark laws may harm the free flow of information and ideas and therefore should be amended or struck down on constitutional or civil liberties grounds. Should this raise concerns regarding these countries' compliance with their international obligations to protect trademarks? Well, that, that's a good question. Um, I've actually written a paper on this topic uh, in the <laughs> Yale Journal of International Law in 2010, and, and I examined whether uh, countries might violate their obligations under the Paris Convention or the TRIPS Agreement if they adopt certain defenses that protect freedom of expression or have certain requirements like a distinctiveness requirement. And, and I, I argue in that paper that these treaty provisions are flexible enough to allow member states to have exceptions to trademark rights. Um, you can have defenses. You can also have certain uh, requirements on what can qualify as a trademark or, or what kind of conduct can result in liability. You know, nations can't do anything, right? But they can enact limits on what can uh, in a number of different ways. And I think that it's possible that's going to happen uh, more in the future. With regard to the uh, immoral or offensive trademark provision, uh, treaties actually do allow nations to have laws banning registration of marks that are uh, immoral or against public policy. And so that's the provision that they have in Europe and a number of other countries. And so one question after the Tam and Bernetti cases is what's going to happen in these other countries? And, you know, I don't know that they're going to follow the United States on this because uh, of the fact that hate speech is, uh, well, now I guess is, is you know, it is protected um, under the First mm -hmm. Amendment, uh, as you see from the Tam case. A number of countries, Canada, um, you know, Germany, are, are very much against uh, including hate speech within the protections of the right to freedom of expression. And so, mm -hmm. uh, you know, profanity, there's recently a case, a Constantine film production versus the EU IPO, where there was a, a very popular German comedy film, um, and it had the F word in it, and it was rejected the, by the EU IPO. And, and the, the uh, you know, one of the lower courts said that that rejection was correct. But the advocate general uh, just recently suggested that perhaps we should actually, you know, not apply this law to this particular trademark. So the advocate general did not suggest that the law would be on, you know, would be uh, in violation of the right to freedom of expression. So it's very possible that I guess that nations might decide these laws are inconsistent with the right to freedom of expression, but they might also just read the statutes narrowly and, and start to find certain marks to not be 
immoral or not against public policy. And uh, and again, you know, I, the United States is very unique is that it has very strong trademark protection, but it also has very, very strong protection for freedom mm-hmm. of expression. So it'll be interesting to see what happens in, in other nations. But um, I'm hopeful that at least with regard to uh, defenses and other kinds of requirements that protect freedom of expression, that nations will either uh, kind of enact statutes that that's kind of protect free speech in these ways, or perhaps courts will interpret the laws in, in ways that, that protect freedom of expression in specific cases. Thank you very much, Lisa. I have now a few rapid fire questions for you. Could you name a word uh, that would summarize the last decade and maybe the one you expect for the decade that is just beginning? Well, that's a tough question. I think I might have to ask for two <laughs> words here. I would say for the last decade, social media. Uh, one example would be our current okay. president, <laughs> right? Uh, uses Twitter all the time. But I think that social media has had a huge influence. Um, and then for the next decade, I would use, again, two words, artificial intelligence. Uh, seems that every day you see stories in the news about how AI is going to change our lives. Where do you take uh, inspiration from? Uh, I would say my kids and my students at the University of San Diego Law School. What is the best piece of advice you have ever received? To balance work and family life um, and also travel a lot while I still am able to do so for reasons of health or otherwise. <laughs> the last book you read? Um, it's a book called Sisters-in-Law. It's about Justice, Supreme Court Justice O'Connor and Supreme Court Justice Ginsburg. And it's just a really interesting book about, about uh, their careers and, and their relationship on the court. What would you have liked to invent or create? And that's my last question. Okay, um, I would like someday to write a novel. So, so we'll see. Maybe, maybe at some point I'll, I'll, uh, I'll do that, but I've not done it yet. Thank you very much, Lisa. Thank you for having me on this show. My guest today was Lisa P. Ramsey, professor at the University of San Diego School of Law. Thank you for listening to Brand and New. Brought to you by the International Trademark Association. Be sure to tune in every two weeks on Tuesday for new episodes. If you like today's podcast, please subscribe and share it. We are always looking for new people to discover brand and new. And to learn more about INTA, its resources and events, please visit www.inta.org.